I'm going to think with me this morning about uh, how the Bible begins in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, we know what happens. God creates a good world. God, God creates everything there is and He creates it all good. And we have a picture by the end of Genesis 1 of a, of a perfect world created by a loving Creator. Genesis 2, we zone in to the pinnacle of this creation, Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, placed in the beautiful garden of Eden. They are there with each other and with God, and, and it's just a, a close-up to, to the, the most intimate and perfect aspect of this world. It's the, the perfect fellowship with God and one another that exists in that garden. Genesis 3, sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. They disobey God. They hide from God. They hide from one another. The world is cursed by the Lord. Death enters the world through sin. And then Genesis 4 comes. And I want to read what happens in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought to the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So just like that, almost as soon as sin entered the world, murder entered the world with it. And humans have continued to murder one another in every single generation from that day until today. God's good world of life intruded on by our sin to the point where we literally kill one another. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 20, 20, 21 through 26. We're in a series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. This book is all about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him as his disciple. And, and we're in a section that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we have been in the Sermon on the Mount for some time already. And it's going to be some time longer before we are done the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is just such a, such a rich section of Scripture that teaches us so much about our hearts and about what it means to follow Christ. And so we have been working our way through this Sermon on the Mount. And I want to give a little bit of context before we jump into the text today to look at where we've been. We, we've gotten through... Uh, chapter 5, verse 20. So, so we've made some headway. And I just want to remind you of a few things about this before we jump into today's text. So in the Sermon on the Mount, this, who is preaching this sermon? Who is speaking? This is a, a few 
weeks ago we saw this, that uh, in verse 1 we see Jesus go up on the mountain and sit down to teach his disciples. And, and we talked about how Matthew here is alluding to Jesus as a greater Moses. He's alluding to Jesus as, as one who goes up the mountain, just as Moses went up Mount Sinai, and just as Moses received the law from God and gave the old covenant to Israel. So now Jesus, who is the greater Moses, comes up the mountain and, and he teaches his new covenant people the law of God. And what this means, if Jesus is the greater Moses, is that Jesus is the one who delivers his people from sin. He's the one who redeems his people from our slavery to our sin. He's the one that brings the new covenant. He's the one that gives the Spirit. He's the one who has the law written on our hearts. Jesus does all this. This who is, is who is speaking. The, the, the greater Moses who brings the new covenant through his death and resurrection, the, the greater Moses who puts his law on our hearts, is speaking in this sermon. Who's he speaking to? Again, we see in verse 1, his disciples. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. So he's, he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his followers. And then he defines his followers in the Beatitudes. Who are his followers? Who are disciples? Well, they're the poor in spirit. They're the ones who come saying, we have nothing before you, Lord. They're the ones who mourn over their sin. They're the ones who meekly submit to his word. The ones who hunger and thirst for his work of righteousness in their lives the ones who are merciful and pure in heart, the ones who, who seek to make peace, and ultimately the ones who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They, they are salt and light in the world. This is who Jesus is speaking to, his disciples who have come with nothing, whom he transforms from the inside out. That's who he's speaking to. And then what is he speaking about in this sermon? What is the Sermon on the Mount actually about as we get into the body of the sermon? And we've seen that it's about having this greater righteousness. Jesus calls his disciples, he calls his people to a greater righteousness than the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in his day. It's about living a, a life of worship to God from the heart. It's about living a life of inward repentance and inward worship and, and having that expressed in all of the outward behavior, outward ethics, outward religion. It's, it's all springing from the heart. This is the greater righteousness that Jesus calls us to. And so now we are getting into what is really the body of the sermon. Now we're getting into, into all the uh, specific ways that Jesus begins to give instruction, say, here's how you live as my disciple. So it's going to become very practical over the next few weeks. But we need to keep that context in mind, lest we hear this as, as just a, a long list of to-dos. No, this is, this is our, our greater Moses who has delivered us from our sin, written his law in our hearts, given us his spirit, transforming us from the inside out, calling us to inward worship because of what he's done for us. That is the context of what we're hearing. Now in this next section, if you look at your Bibles, Matthew 5, and, and, and you look at verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, and verse 43, what you're going to see is this formula. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Alright, so, so this section of scripture is following this, this uh, formula, this, what they call these antitheses, where Jesus says, Here, here's what you've heard, here's what I say. And this section of scripture we're starting is, is very prone to misinterpretation. And so I want, I want to, just as we get going, just name two of these misinterpretations before we, we make them ourselves. One, we hear these, 
these sections that Jesus is giving, these, these instructions he's giving, and the first misinterpretation is that we think, is Jesus replacing the Old Testament? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Some people will read this and say, Jesus, Jesus is saying, here's what the Old Testament said, but now here's what I say. And then they relegate the Old Testament to, to the Old Covenant and say, this, this is, this is, Jesus did away with that. Here's, we just need to look at what Jesus said. But that's, we know that's not true, don't we? Because what we've been looking at the last few weeks, what did Jesus say in verse 18? Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus has upheld the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus has been speaking already that, that the Old Testament continues to be authoritative for his disciples and that they are to keep even the least of these commandments. They are to keep them truly and fully and inwardly. So Jesus is not pitting himself against the Old Testament in these verses. We need to understand that. This is not Old Testament versus Jesus. So what is it? Well, look at, look at what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old. So, so what is happening here is that Jesus is contrasting not the Old Testament's teaching and his teaching, but he's contrasting the Pharisees and the scribes' interpretation of the Old Testament with his teaching. So you disciples have heard from the Pharisees and scribes that it was said to the ancient Israelites. That, that, that's the way we understand this, that, that the Pharisees say that God said this to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. This is the Pharisees' interpretation, and in each case, every week we're going to see that their interpretation was in some way mishandling the Scriptures. And so Jesus is saying, you've heard this, you, you've heard your teachers say this, but, but I say to you, and, and this is so important because Jesus, Jesus does not say, but here's what I think the Old Testament means. No, he says, but I say to you. So he responds to their misinterpretation with authority. He, he says, they've said this, but I say to you, it's him saying, I am the lawgiver. I'm the one who made this law. I'm the one who wrote this law. Jesus is speaking with authority to interpret the law. He's not saying, here's what I think it means. Here's my take on it. No, he's saying, I say to you, here is what God has said. He, he's rightly telling us what these Old Testament commandments were all about. So this is not Jesus replacing the Old Testament. This is not Old Testament versus Jesus. This is Jesus as the lawgiver. Jesus as the Son of God telling us what it means. The second misinterpretation we tend to have in these verses is that Jesus does not intend for us to obey these commandments. As we will see, these commandments give an impossibly high standard. For us, get into the very heart of sin, and and it's and it's easy to think, and, and and we've heard people say all Jesus is doing is showing us that we can't do it, so that we we say we need you, and 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 there's no intent that we would actually hear this and try to apply it to our lives in a practical way. But no, that's that's not what's going on. Jesus just said that we need to have greater righteousness. Jesus just said we need to keep these commandments. He's, he's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to those who have the law written on their hearts. He's speaking to those who have been set free from sin. And so these instructions, while they are impossibly high for us in our flesh, by His Spirit, by His work, by His grace, we can read these and actually have an eye to keep them. And that is what we, that's how we need to approach these sections is, is not that we keep them in our own strength, but to realize Jesus is giving us instructions for us to actually obey. He's calling us to greater righteousness. He's calling us to a full 
inward, true keeping of the law. And we are to follow him as his disciples in light of his new covenant work in our hearts. So, so that is the, that, that's a lot of context for as we go into this, but it's important so that we can really understand how to hear Jesus' words. We hear these as those who have been saved, are being transformed, enabled by his grace to hear these and keep these commandments truly and inwardly from the heart because of what he's done in us. And so with all that said, to the first, this first one that we see is Jesus explaining the commandment, do not murder. And so let's read Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus is explaining the true and inward and full keeping of the commandment, do not murder in these verses. He is calling us to keep this commandment as his disciples through the new covenant work he has done in our lives. And what we see in this section is that do not murder actually means three things. We're going to see in this section three meanings of the phrase of the commandment, do not murder. Three meanings of do not murder. And so first, do not murder means do not murder. <laughs> okay? Do not murder means do not murder. Let's look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And you know what? That is exactly what was said to those of old. God said to his people at Mount Sinai in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. God said this to Israel. And before we go any further this morning, we need to just look at that commandment on its own. What, what, what does that mean? We need to think about what this entails. Well, to murder is to take away the life of another human being. To take away the life of another human being. Some qualification we understand is that this, this commandment's not speaking of life generally, it's speaking of human life. It's also not speaking of the just and authoritative use of the sword that God has given to governments. This is talking about someone taking life in an unauthorized and unjust killing of another human being. That is what God forbids, is the taking of life from another. Again, not speaking of life generally, not speaking of the use of the sword by governments, but speaking of a personal, unauthorized, unjust taking of a life. Now, we live in a society, church, that agrees in principle with this command not to murder. We also have this law, don't we? Do not murder. Yet at the same time, I want to point out this morning that our society has no foundation for this belief. We, we live in a culture that has rejected any form of revealed and authoritative truth. And it's embraced uh, generally a naturalistic worldview. And, and so according to our culture's worldview, all we are is a bunch of molecules bouncing around in this little corner of the universe. 
That, that's, that's what humans are. We're just a bunch of molecules bouncing around until it all goes away. And in this worldview, life has no inherent meaning. Life has no intrinsic value. And we have so separated revealed truth from law in our own culture that, that we have no foundation to say, do not murder. It doesn't, doesn't really matter anyways. But God's command, do not murder, is rooted in the rock-solid truth in Scripture that human beings are created by God in His image. The image of God is the foundation of the commandment, do not murder. Life is the gift of our Creator. Humans have God-given value as His image bearers, and this is what makes murder a sin. This is just so important for us to understand in a culture that is losing the foundation, that, that, that the foundation is that human beings are created in the image of God, given life by God, have value because of God. This is why murder is a sin. And so we should stand against any and all taking away of another's life. Not just homicide, but also abortion. Also, the unjust use of state authority, the abuse of power, doctor-assisted suicide. We should stand against all of these forms of murder, of taking away another life, because every one of these cases we have someone that was made in the image of God and given value by their creator. And so we should not murder. Do not murder means do not murder. But you notice in verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees do not stop there, do they? They add the phrase, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So those words are not in Exodus. They are not in Deuteronomy. They are not, they are not there in the Old Testament scriptures. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is, this is an addition that they gave to the command in their teaching on it. Now listen, that's true in and of itself, isn't it? I mean, if someone murders, they are liable to judgment. That's, that's true, but why did they do it? What was the effect of adding this qualification to the command? Well, here is the effect, is that it restricted the law so that it applied exclusively and only to the act of murder itself. So, so when you say whoever murders will be liable to judgment, what else are you saying? You're saying if you don't murder, you're not liable to judgment. Right? And so, so if this is all do not murder means, then... Just don't kill anybody, and you've kept the commandment, right? But it's at this point that Jesus corrects their teaching and tells us do not murder means much more than do not murder. Second, do not murder means put off anger. Do not murder means put off anger. Do not be angry. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus responds to this interpretation, this uh, wrong interpretation, this wrong addition by the scribes and the Pharisees by, by saying, as the authoritative lawgiver, that anger and insults make us just as liable to judgment as murder. Anger and insults make us just as liable to judgment as murder does. Our malicious bitter, hostile thoughts, and the way that we express those thoughts in words and actions that tear others down make us guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. That's what Jesus is teaching. 
And Jesus makes it clear that we are guilty not only before a human court, but before God himself. So we have a few words in these opening verses about judgment. Liable to judgment, liable to the council, liable to the hell of fire. Probably what was happening is the Pharisees and the scribes, when they said you're liable to judgment, were referring to human judgment in a human court. And Jesus is saying, if you're even angry or insult your brother, yes, you're, you're, liable, you're guilty before a human court, but much more, you are, you are liable to judgment before God himself. You are guilty before the true judge of all the earth for these angry thoughts, for these insulting words. Guilty before the Lord himself. So do not murder means do not be angry. Put off anger. Well, how did Jesus get that? How did, how did Jesus get put off anger from do not murder? And one possibility is he read the Old Testament. He read the Old Testament. He read Genesis 4. You might have picked up on it, but before Cain murdered Abel, what did we read in Genesis 4? Cain became very angry with his brother. Cain became very angry with his brother. And God comes to Cain when he's angry, not when he's murdering him, but when he's angry and says, why are you angry? Don't let sin get dominion over you. It's crouching at your door. He's angry. God calls him to put off his anger, and, and, and Cain does not do it, and he murders his brother. And what does this mean? It means that anger is to murder what a seed is to a tree. Murder is anger fully grown. That, that's what Jesus teaches us. Murder is anger fully grown. Murder is anger fully matured. And listen, this, this, this calls us to a radical change in perspective than what we default to in our sinful nature. We like to believe that we are basically good people. And when we hear of a murder, you hear of a murder in the news, you can find yourselves thinking, how could someone do something so evil? Have you ever thought that? Be honest. Have you ever thought, how could someone do something so evil? I think that all the time. But if what Jesus says here is true, then when we hear of a murder, what should we say? I have the same capacity for that in my own heart right now. I'm no different. That's what we say. I'm no different. I'm no better. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no different and no better than the worst murderer that I can conceive of because we have the same heart. I, I have the exact same thing in my heart that they had in their heart. Theirs is just more matured, more fully grown, more developed. More, but, but, but the only thing that's restraining my heart from that is, is the grace of God. But that's, that's in me. That is me. We've all been sinfully angry, which means that we all share, every one of us this morning shares a murderous heart. We've all said things we shouldn't say to our brother, which means we all share murderous words. And because God looks at the heart, this means that we are all liable to God's judgment. Because God looks at the heart, because God looks at what's inside, and we all have this murderous heart, we are all liable to his judgment. And what is the judgment of God? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 22, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Liable to the hell of fire. This word for hell, you might see a footnote in your Bible, it's literally the word Gehenna. 
from the Valley of Hinnon. This, this valley, this, this is, a, this is a actual place outside Jerusalem that from the time of King Josiah on was, was literally a burning, perpetually burning dump outside of Jerusalem, just continually on fire. And they would, they would bring trash there, but they'd also bring corpses of criminals. It, it, it was just this, this perpetual dump outside of Jerusalem where, where, where it was just an, an image of everything awful and never-ending fire. And that's the word Jesus uses when he teaches on hell. He, 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 he uses this picture of this, of this perpetual fire, this perpetually burning dump, and, and he says this, this is a picture of the wrath of God. This image represents the terrifying reality of God's wrath towards sinners. It's, it's, it's never-ending. It, it's perpetual. It goes on and on. The biblical definition of, of God's judgment is that his judgment is eternal conscious punishment. Eternal conscious punishment. This is what the judgment of God is. It, it goes forever and ever. And it's conscious. We, we, the, the people in hell will, will be aware of that punishment forever and ever. And the punishment itself is, as according to Thessalonians, it is being away from the presence of God, separated from God himself a terrifying reality and Jesus says here it's not only a place for murderers it's not only a place for the worst of the worst it's a place for the angry it's a place for the hostile it's a place for the bitter it's a place for the malicious it's a place for the unforgiving which means this is a place for all of us hell is for us we deserve it this is what we deserve right now we should be there and we should never escape. But this is the good news of the gospel that he sent his son, Jesus, who is speaking here. He sent him to die for our sins, to, to die for those murderous thoughts, to die for those murderous words, to die for murderous actions, to take those sins on himself, to bear the judgment of God in the place of sinners, so that even though we are truly guilty and truly deserving of that judgment, that all who repent and trust in him will be forgiven and will not be judged in this way. I just want to say this morning, if you have never called out to God for forgiveness, and this morning you are realizing that, that before God, because God sees the heart, and, and what Jesus is saying here means that you are guilty. If you've never called out to Jesus for forgiveness, then this morning trust in Jesus Christ. Confess that you are guilty before him. Turn from your sin and, and confess that Jesus is your only hope. Confess that only because Jesus died for sins and rose again can you be saved and forgiven and ask God to save you. Call out to him even now as I preach to save you from your sin and your guilt before him. We are all liable to this judgment, every single one of us. And we can only be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ and call out to him today. And God promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So do that today if you have never trusted in Christ. And, and for those who have, what's the application here? Do not murder means do not murder, but it also means put off anger. So, so we need to do that. We need to put off our anger. We, we, we cannot be content to let anger live inside of us. We need to put it to death. Now, the question is how? How do we do that? Now, some of you maybe have watched Daniel Tiger, and they've got a song you can learn about counting 
to 10 or so, maybe 5, 10, but, but should you count? Should you just start counting when you go to anger management classes? So that, how, how do we actually do it? How do we put off our anger? Well, Ephesians, Ephesians 4 gives us instruction here. Listen to what Ephesians says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. How do you put off anger? How do you put away malice? We need to recognize, we need to recognize the root of your anger is that you yourself have a hostility to God. You yourself are, you're not, you're not just angry at the person in front of you, you're, you're, you're truly angry at the Lord. You're truly opposed to Him. And yet, what has He done in response to you? He has sent His Son to die for your sins. He has shown you kindness. He has shown you mercy. He has shown you forgiveness. So recognize the root of your anger is, is it's before Him, and then remember the kindness of God. Remember the mercy of God. Remember the gift of God and His Son. As God in Christ forgave you, meditate on that reality and then repent of your sins and commit to righteousness. Confess those sins and repent of them and and commit yourself to His way. The only way to put off anger at the heart is to let our hearts be transformed by the gospel. We 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 can't put off inward anger with external solutions. We, we, we need to let God's Spirit remind us of the kindness of God in our hearts until, until we are moved to repent of anger and, and we feel it falling away from us as we commit to righteousness and repentance. And this leads to the third meaning of do not murder. If we're going to commit to repentance and commit to righteousness, then do not murder also means pursue peace. Do not murder means pursue peace. There's a principle that Jesus teaches in this passage that that applies to all of God's commandments. Uh, It's what theologian and pastor Bob St. John calls the two-sided rule, also my father-in-law, the two-sided rule. But but this is is a principle for interpreting the commandments. And and here's the principles that God's prohibitions always include a positive instruction in them. God's prohibitions always include a positive instruction in them. And so let's just think about other examples for a minute. So, so if you say to your children, don't hit your brother, there's, there's a positive command in that, isn't there? Hidden in, hidden in it, but a real, a real hope, a real command, don't hit your brother, includes be kind to your brother. There's, there's a positive instruction in it that you desire their kindness. Or think about uh, the first commandment, don't worship idols, you, don't have no, you shall have no other gods before me. What does God want? Does God want us to just, to just not worship? Just don't worship idols and you'll be, you'll be good. No, what does God want? He wants us to worship Him. The, the, the commandment to not worship idols includes the command, worship Him. Worship Him only, worship Him fully, worship Him exclusively. Every prohibition includes a positive other side to it. And that's what we see here, Jesus doing. The prohibition against murder includes the positive instruction to pursue peace. 
God, God does not just call us to, to put off anger and, and keep our distance. No, no. He calls us to, to go to the other person and pursue peace. And Jesus gives two illustrations to show this in 23 through 26. Two different illustrations that teach this positive pursuit of peace is, is, is the full application of do not murder. First is an illustration from the temple. Look again at verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this is a picture of the worship of the temple and someone is, is in Jerusalem. They're about to offer a sacrifice on the altar in the inner court and they remember that their brother has something against them. They remember they are not reconciled to their brother, which, which is, uh, would, would mean this is talking about another believer. They're not reconciled. And they remember that as they're about to offer the sacrifice, and Jesus says, stop what you're doing. Don't offer it. Go to your brother. Be reconciled, then come back and offer your gift. And this teaches us something so important about how God views us and our relationship with Him, and our worship of Him, when, when we are not reconciled to others, is, is, is hypocritical. It's not real. You, you, you can offer worship, you can offer sacrifice, you can offer songs, but, but if, if you are willing to stay unreconciled to your brother, then everything that you're doing vertically is, is, is just empty religion to God. And God prioritizes our reconciliation with each other more than our public worship of Him more than our acts of worship to Him, more, more, than, more than our taking communion. In a little while, we're going to take communion together, but if you are not reconciled to your brother, let it pass. Truly, this morning, if you are not reconciled to another believer, do not take the Lord's Supper. And you know, I've thought about this. Jesus doesn't say, commit in your heart that you will talk to them and, and then offer the sacrifice. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, no, leave it there. Go to them. Be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. This is something that Jesus seriously instructs us to do, is to be reconciled before we offer this public worship to the Lord. And the reason that is, because how, how can you offer a sacrifice for your sins while you remain in anger? While you remain in sin, while you remain unreconciled, you're not willing to be reconciled. How, can, how could that be true and genuine? It can't be. It can't be. Without reconciliation, worship is just empty religion. And so Jesus teaches the urgency of reconciliation here with believers. And then he gives another illustration. He gives another illustration from the courtroom. Look at verse 25. He says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here uh, you have you have done something wrong. There's an accuser. It seems that this is coming from the, from the world of an unbeliever now. You, you, have, you have wronged an unbeliever. An unbeliever has something against you. And, and what are Jesus' instructions? His instructions is essentially make it right before things get worse. <laughs> make it right for, for your own sake before them. Because if you, if you fight this and if you don't reconcile, if you don't pursue peace, then, then you are going to go to jail instead of you pay the last penny. You know, there's, there's a lot of cultural uh, background to what Jesus is saying here, that, that if, if you fought an accuser when you actually did something wrong and, and, and you, tried to, you tried to say that you weren't doing it, you ended up in court, that your, your sentence would just get greater and greater and greater the longer that went on. 
And Jesus is saying, don't go down that path. Don't, don't fight. Don't, don't, don't stay irreconcilable. Just settle quickly. Settle quickly with your accuser. And so, so this is calling not just for reconciliation, but also restitution. Calling for restitution. He's, he's saying settle with him before it gets worse. So, so let me give you an example here from, from our lives recently. Thankfully, this is a hypothetical example, but um, we were tasked to cat-sit our neighbor's cat. And um, it's an outdoor cat, okay? Complicates things a little bit, but we said, just, just go leave it some food and, and uh, just make sure he's doing okay. So we did that for a few days and saw the cat, gave it food, and then, then the next couple days, we didn't see the cat. We're like, it's an outdoor cat. Just open the food, and, and I'm sure he's fine. As our neighbors get back, and they, they say, it's, you know, great, thank, thank you for watching our cat, and say, no problem. And then the next day, we see online that their cat is gone. They can't find their cat, and so text them and say, like, have you seen your cat since you've been back? And they say, no. They're like, we lost their cat. Now, thankfully, they found their cat, and all was well. But if they had not, if they had not, we would not have just gone and said, we're so sorry, and just ended there. What would we have done? We would have said, let's get you a new cat. <laughs> now, you can't replace a pet, I know. So it would, would have been a bad situation. But, and they're very, very, very nice, forgiving neighbors, and they're very understanding. But what would we do? We, we would seek to make it right. Seek to make it right. We, would, we wouldn't just stop and say, please forgive me. And then just not do anything. We, we, we just do everything we can to, to reconcile fully by making what we've done wrong right with someone. And this is the kind of full repentance Jesus calls for and, and the full commitment to peace. All this from do not murder. All this stemming from, from this sixth commandment to, to say pursue peace, reconcile, seek forgiveness, make things right, do it quickly. And so we need to repent, we need to seek forgiveness, and we need to make things right when we have wronged someone. And when someone has wronged us, we need to do the same thing. We need to pursue them. This final point, pursue peace. I want to give one qualification this morning. In Romans, Paul says, pursue peace as far as it depends on you. And so, if you are not reconciled to someone this morning, but you have done all you can, to reconcile with them, then before the Lord, you can have a clear conscience. Pursue peace as far as it depends on you. So do not murder means do not murder, but it also means put off anger and pursue peace. And by God's grace, we want to apply these instructions to our lives and to our church and to all of our relationships. Church, as we prepare for communion, we need to remember that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so this morning we see each other, and we, we see friendly people. We see friendly faces. We see people living uh, decent lives. But God sees you fully this morning. God sees everything that's going on in your heart. God sees every angry thought. God, God sees it all. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees us fully this morning. He sees the true you. And as we take communion, we need to understand that God sees us fully.
fully. He sees our heart. And yet, in Hebrews, the author goes on to say this. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God sees you fully, but God has provided a refuge of righteousness for you in Jesus Christ. So don't hide from him. Confess your sins to him. Confess every sin in your heart that you are aware of to him and rest in the righteousness of Christ Repent of your sins and commit by his grace to walk in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, that you would help us to work through what you've just spoken to us in our own hearts before you, Lord, as we sing and as we confess and and meditate, Lord, help us even now to begin applying your word. Thank you so much that you did not come to give us a law for us to keep or be condemned, but that you came, you saved us, you gave us the kingdom, you made us yours, and and then you gave us your spirit, and now you call us to respond to what you've done through these instructions. Lord, thank you for your grace. Help us to rest in it now as we celebrate what Jesus has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.